Church into this place this morning. My name is Jamie. Good to see all of you guys. Thanks for conquering and overcoming not only the weather, but all the shut down streets of Peachtree City this morning. In light of all of that, uh, this crowd is incredibly encouraging. Uh, if you didn't know this, another announcement, uh, Jason is uh, establishing a stand-up comedy act later this fall, and you should buy tickets to that whenever that happens. Um, as he mentioned just a moment ago, uh, we are uh, currently working our way through part two of the book of Hebrews. Uh, if you weren't around for part one, that's okay. Um, I, I attempt to do sort of a previously on Hebrews sort of thing each week to, to catch us up to speed. That'll be a little bit more brief this morning. And so um, as was mentioned just a moment ago, I would encourage you if you find uh, this morning's message to be intriguing at all, uh, I, I would encourage you to go back and, and check out the sermons leading up to Hebrews chapter 11 and, and see what you've missed. This is an incredible book of the Bible up there at the top of my list, if, if that's okay to to say about books of the Bible. Um, it's a fascinating book. It puts on display in a very unique way, the book of Hebrews, that the Bible as a whole is a tapestry that tells one beautifully interwoven story of redemption with Jesus as the hero of the entire thing. The author of Hebrews is writing to a people who are declaring, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but they're being pressured from the outside to abandon Christianity, to go back to all the Old Testament religious offices, institutions, etc., that actually find their fulfillment ultimately in Jesus Christ himself. And so the author of Hebrews does something interesting. He doesn't begin with, get your head in the game, get your act together, guys. He begins with, look at all the ways that Jesus is supremely valuable. That's the first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews. If you missed Hebrews chapters one through 10, that's essentially a summary. For 10 chapters, the author of Hebrews essentially spins the jewel that is Jesus Christ, giving us a glimpse at one facet after another of the person and work of Jesus, putting Jesus on full display for this battle-inflicted audience that he's writing to. Chapter 11 represents a shift, not in the sense that when you get to chapter 11, uh, no longer does it have anything to do with Jesus, this particular book of the Bible, but rather in the sense that the author of Hebrews wants us to understand that something happens as we behold Jesus, that in putting Jesus on full display for 10 glorious chapters, the author of Hebrews now presents us with a call to faith and endurance. All of those glorious truths about Jesus are meant to create in, in us what you might say a, a settled confidence, a confidence in God and his promises that drives us to keep trusting, to keep enduring, to keep persevering, come what may. Another way to say it, chapter 11 is meant to strengthen and deepen our confidence in God and his promises in such a way that it radically impacts the way we look at and engage the present realities of life. And so if you find yourself longing for uh, your confidence in God and his promises to be strengthened this morning, you've, you've come to the right place. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 11. That's where we'll be this morning, beginning in verse 7. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. Uh, if you don't own a Bible or the translation that you have in your possession is difficult to track with, please take one of those Bibles as our gift to you. As I said last week, happy early Valentine's Day. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in, and we'll go ahead and get to work. God, thank you for this glorious book of the Bible. Thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning, really, to dive into a survey of the Old Testament. We all kind of get a free seminary course today. 
Um, and and uh, for that, I'm grateful, grateful for Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, I pray that you, you would do what you hoped would happen in, in the hearts of those receiving this letter 2,000 years ago, that you would strengthen our faith in you, in your word, in your promises, and that that strengthening of our faith would lead to great obedient action for the sake of your name and your glory. God, would you work mightily in our hearts this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we desperately need you. Would you awaken our hearts from their slumber for your glory and our good. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So last week, if you weren't here, we camped out in the first six verses of Hebrews chapter 11. And and we began with one of the most famous declarations in all of the Bible. In fact, some of you may have this phrase plastered on a coffee mug, maybe framed in a picture hanging on your wall, maybe on a bumper sticker on your car. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That faith is not a hunch. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not a naively optimistic leap in the dark, hoping that there's a floor where you're gonna land. Faith is both assurance and conviction, the author of Hebrews says. And that assurance and conviction have to do with things hoped for and things not seen. So there are two aspects of faith. There's a future aspect of faith, the assurance of things hoped for, things that have yet to come to pass, things that have not yet been fulfilled. And then there's the conviction of things not seen, things that are beyond our visible perception of reality in some sense. We know that there's a a future and a visual aspect of faith um, because if you fast forward to verse six, faith involves believing that God exists, there's the visual aspect, a God that we cannot visibly see, and it involves believing that he rewards those who seek him, a hope in what the future holds that impacts the way we live our lives in the present. In his commentary, Kent Hughes summarizes those dual aspects of faith really well. He says this, he says, faith is a dynamic certainty made up of two certitudes. Number one, a future certitude that makes one sure of the future as if it were present. And secondly, a visual certitude that brings the invisible within view. One hears God's word, he says, and so believes it that its future fulfillment becomes subjectively present and visible to the spiritual eye. As we continue to work our way through chapter 11 this morning, the author of Hebrews is gonna show us example after example after example of men and women of faith throughout the ages. And these are some, some, uh, some pillars of the faith throughout redemptive history. These are people that I'm looking forward to grabbing a cup of coffee with in, in the new heaven and earth. Um, men and women who both believed in God and believed God. Some in the midst of great triumph, some in the, in the midst of great affliction. Beginning in verse seven, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Did God really say? Noah's response, yes, God really did say. His faith enabled him to see a flooding of the earth in a relatively dry land. His faith enabled him to see an incredibly massive arc of cypress wood atop the raging sea. His faith enabled him to grab hold of God's future promise of salvation for him and his family. God spoke and Noah believed. 
And his belief led to obedience. His faith required action. His faith required him to grab hold of the blueprints that God had given him. Not to earn God's favor, but in response to God's favor. I don't know if you know this, but it took roughly 120 years to build the ark. You talk about a home project. Imagine how many times Noah was faced with whether or not to abandon his faith. I mean, how many times over the course of 120 years do you think he faced mocking by the watching world? Yet he continued to trust that what God had spoken was true. And, and we're told he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That righteousness, we talked about this last week, is not earned but gifted. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. For his sake, for Christ's sake, Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that righteousness from God is necessary for salvation. Verse six says so much in chapter 11 that we can't self-create the righteousness that God requires. It comes by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's Jesus himself who said in Matthew chapter 24 regarding his second coming, he said, for as were the days of Noah, so he's bringing Hebrews chapter 11, verse seven, the story of Noah to bear. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man, that's Jesus. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. And so Jesus takes the story of Noah and he puts it on us, present tense. God spoke and Noah believed. Will we believe the words of Jesus here in Matthew 24? If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, the, the, the moral of the story, so to speak, is that there's still time to put your faith in Jesus, that the proverbial reign of the last day, Jesus' second coming, is still future. Verse eight, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11 is given a lot of press. And that's because he's arguably the greatest example of faith in all of the scriptures. James chapter two, verse 23 tells us that because of Abraham's faith, he was called a friend of God, a friend of God. We're told in the Genesis account that, that God called Abraham to leave his home, to take his family to God's place of promise where his descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky. And Abraham believed God by faith. Did God really say? Abraham's response, yes, God really did say. Abraham's faith in God's future promises created a, a, some sort of a present tense substance within him. Similar to Noah, Abraham's faith led to obedience. His faith required action. We're told that he went out not knowing where he was going. He didn't yet have all of the information, but he did have God's word and God's promise. And that was enough to warrant obedient action on his part. I don't, I don't know about you guys, but that's incredibly convicting to a guy like me who likes to have every fact in place. 
Just ask my wife about big purchases in our family. It's a miserable experience for her. Buying a car, we can find the perfect car and I'm gonna pick that thing apart, you know, detail by detail by detail to make sure that we're getting it right. Another way to say it, the root idol of control in my life runs deep and God's working on me by his grace in that regard. Crazy thing about Abraham, doesn't have all the facts, he steps out by faith. And and that's not the only crazy thing about Abraham's story. Here's another crazy piece of of, of Abraham and, and Sarah's story. The only thing that Abraham owned in the land of promise in his lifetime was Sarah's tomb. Abraham had faith in a promise that wouldn't ultimately be fulfilled in his own life. And we find ourselves faced with the same question. Will we live our lives in the present tense by faith in the promises of God that may not find their fulfillment in this lifetime? As verse 10 says, looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, the new Jerusalem. Verse 11 By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Sarah was past the age of having children. Abraham, a terrible way to describe a senior citizen in my opinion, as good as dead, meaning he was too old as well. It's impossible, biologically speaking, that these people are having kids, in other words. By faith, Abraham and Sarah determined that it was more impossible for God to break his promise. Did God really say? Abraham and Sarah's response, yes, God really did say. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The the most significant words in this section are the first five. These all died in faith. The death is the final test of faith. Like the three boys in the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter three that we talked about last week, Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac by faith saw the, the future hope of the city of God. They knew, as the apostle Paul says, that their citizenship is in heaven. And that hope created in them a substance that enabled them to to breathe their final breath as one of faith. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That Abraham knew that God had promised that through Isaac, he would become the father of many nations. And so he concluded, either God must be planning to provide a substitute for Isaac, or I'm about to get a front row seat to a resurrection from the dead. Did God really say, through Isaac shall your offspring be named? Abraham's response, yes, God really did say. 
Verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. The, the pattern here is that all these descendants of Abraham had faith that looked beyond their own death. They were sure of things hoped for. They were sure of things that would find their fulfillment after they had breathed their last breath. Isaac and Jacob had faith that God would bless their offspring, and so they, they invoked those future blessings. Joseph had faith that God would give his people the promised land, and so he gave directions regarding his burial that coincided with that promise. Did God really say? Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph's response, yes, God really did say. Verse 23 now we get the story of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Good grief. Like That right there is a sermon series. You see what we're up against here. This is a survey of these people's stories. If you want more of the details, you're gonna have to go read these stories in the Old Testament yourself. To try to summarize it, Moses' parents had the faith to, to preserve their baby boy's life in a very dark and dangerous moment in Israel's history, a moment in which Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had commanded the execution of every newborn baby in the land. By faith, Moses himself chose not to have power, prestige, and and fleeting pleasure define his life. Which, by the way, by faith, we can make the same choice. Not to allow power, prestige, and fleeting pleasure to define our lives either. By faith, Moses chose the difficult path of identifying with God's people and their struggles. By faith, you and I can choose the difficult path of pressing into the church and identifying with God's people and their struggles as well. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Notice the future aspect of Moses' faith in verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, Moses left Egypt. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Notice the visual aspect of Moses' faith in verse 27. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. In verses 26 and 27, you see both the future and the visual aspects of faith that the author of Hebrews has already argued for in verses 1 and 6. You see it in the life of Moses, the both and. By faith, Moses and the Israelites kept the Passover, believing that God would deliver them out of Egyptian enslavement. By faith, Moses led God's people through the Red Sea, liberating an entire people by believing that what God had promised would come true. Did God really say Moses' response Yes, God really did say. Verse 30, 
By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Joshua, um, as, as the people of God entered into the land of Canaan, was given specific instructions by the Lord as to how to take down the city of Jer- Jericho. And he believed God, as did the people. And again, their faith required action. Disobedience would have revealed their unbelief. This is significant. Think about this. Their their responsive obedience was actually evidence of their faith. We've talked about this before. If you think about a plant, good fruit above the surface reveals that there are roots below the dirt. Same is true of us. Disobedience to God is ultimately a faith issue. It's ultimately a belief issue. It's why we're so committed to fostering a a church culture of fighting to believe. Fighting to believe who God God is and who God is for us. That he is who he says he is and, and that all of his promises that find their yes in Jesus Christ are ours for the taking. That's what we're after. We're seeking to fight that good fight of faith. Verse 31 Maybe my favorite verse in all of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. By faith, Rahab assisted God's people in taking over the city of Jericho. She risked her life because she believed that God was true to his promises. Isn't it astonishing that a prostitute made the hall of faith list in Hebrews chapter 11? From a Christian perspective, the answer is not remotely. That Rahab would make the list is a declaration of the gospel. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 31 asks the question, are you a great sinner? And the answer is yes and amen. But is Jesus a greater savior? Hallelujah, he is. You're not beyond the reach of God's grace. No matter what story you bring into this building uh, is, whatever that looks like, whatever chapters have been written leading up to the present tense chapter, by faith. John 3.16, one of the most often quoted verses in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Rahab's story means that there's hope for all of us sinners who will bring the empty hands of faith to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? Verse 32, he continues on. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. I alluded to this last week. Do you see how, without so much as a pause, the author of Hebrews goes from 
conquering kingdoms, stopping the mouths of lions, escaping the sword, receiving the dead back by resurrection, without so much as a pause, he goes from those things to torture, mocking, flogging, imprisonment, and martyrdom. Verse 39, And all these, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. All of these, in the list from verses 32 through 38, and really all of the people that that we looked at before verse 32, all of these were commended through their faith. Those who stopped the mouths of lions and those who were sawn in two. Going back to last week, this is so critical When you think of Hebrews chapter 11 and what's being communicated, faith is not always rewarded the same way in this life. Some of us will love Jesus and will live a pretty comfortable life. Others of us will love Jesus and will suffer a great deal for it. And most of us will ebb and flow between seasons of comfort and seasons of affliction, seasons of triumph and seasons of tragedy. Is Jesus your treasure? The author of Hebrews wants you to to wrestle intently with that question. He better be because you have no idea how your story is going to unfold. I shared this last week. I'll share it again this week because I think it's so critical to what the author of Hebrews is saying in this chapter. Friday a week ago, nine days ago, fellow Acts 29 church planter and pastor, uh, he's planting up in Tennessee right now, was, was with his family on vacation in Orlando, the Magic Kingdom. Friday, he and his wife and their kids having... A grand old time. And as the day unfolded, in a moment, his wife suffered an aneurysm. And less than 24 hours later, they were pulling her off of life support. I mean, think about that. That that sounds like Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 38. You're, You're experiencing utopian bliss in the greatest place on earth, the happiest place on earth, the magic kingdom. And in a moment, you go from that to the loss of your spouse and your mother. Just like that. No idea that was coming. We don't know what the future holds. But we do know, according to the author of Hebrews, going back to last week, that with Jesus as our treasure, we can persevere like Enoch and Abel. We can persevere in seasons of triumph and seasons of tragedy. Now we see why the author of Hebrews has been doing what he's been doing for 10 chapters, telling us to look at Jesus. Isn't he glorious? Isn't he supremely valuable? Notice again in these verses, verses 39 and 40, this idea of the people of the Old Testament looking to a greater promise. Sure, they got glimpses of the promises of God, but they they all anticipated a more glorious future hope, a better priest, a better sacrifice, a better covenant. This theme of Jesus is greater is tattooed all over the pages of this book of the Bible. And and make no mistake about it, Jesus is greater. Think about this for a second. None of the men and women in this chapter, though commended for their faith, were perfect. If you're not a Christian, I think this is quite devastating because these are the people you're trying to measure up to. Abraham lied twice. Noah was a drunk. Sarah laughed at God. Isaac lied. Jacob deceived. Moses was a murderer. David was a murderer and an adulterer. And these are just the well-known names on the list of Hebrews chapter 11. If the goal is to be like these people ultimately, we're done for. 
Jesus is the only perfect one in this rescue story for the ages. The good news is, as we turn to Jesus in faith, the the ultimate call of Hebrews chapter 11 is not perfection, but perseverance. The perfect Jesus is the one who ministers for the church in heavenly places. If you are a Christian, that's good news, and that's all the more reason to walk by faith. We have a great high priest and king in whom every one of God's promises find their fulfillment. Did God really say in Jesus Christ? The answer is yes, God really did say. Jesus is with us in both comfort and affliction. And ultimately, in the end, he is our greatest gift and gain for eternity. My prayer is that that would strengthen our faith and that in the strengthening of our faith, we would find ourselves led to greater steps of obedient action for the glory of God. In a moment, we're gonna receive of communion, the communion table. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread and dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. Um, The table will be available to you for the remainder of this service. You can come whenever you're you're ready to, to do so. In preparation to to receive of communion, I would would encourage you to just take some time and and to stop like we did last week and just go, go to the Lord, approach confidently the throne of God's grace, as the author of Hebrews says elsewhere, and ask God to strengthen your faith where it's weak. And if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I invite you to bring nothing more than your sin and the empty hands of faith to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and to trust him by faith, to to take the first step of faith this morning.